Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. Today, I'm bringing a parent to the podcast because I think this voice is really important. Wendy Hind is a writer, poet, and educator, a former university vice president, professor, policy advisor, and an attorney. She is also the founder and curator of the tiny poetry project, Narrative Medicine for the Soul. She uses narrative medicine and medical humanities as a way of healing, understanding, teaching, and connecting to others regarding issues of illness and health. In addition to appearing on podcasts, she publishes health-related essays and posts tiny health-related poems on social media. Wendy also provides workshops for healthcare professionals, patients, and caregivers to teach them how to closely listen and effectively tell stories of health and illness in order to radically shift healthcare back to a whole patient understanding, increasing the well-being of all those involved in the process of healing. Please join me in welcoming Wendy Hind. Hi, Wendy. How are you? I'm great. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to do this episode just because it's so interesting and something really different. And I think it will resonate with listeners to hear that parent perspective. Well, great. I'm super happy to be here too and share kind of our journey with you and your audience. So we'll just jump right in. And we sort of cross paths in an unusual way through another contact. And, you know, so sometimes those stars align. But I, again, I thought your story was so captivating in the work that you're doing is really interesting. So let's just start with, um, you know, you shared with me that you have a son that has chronic congenital disease, a heart disease, and that that has really shaped what you do. Can you talk a little bit about your son and his journey? I would love to, you know, I have never knock on wood had very, had any serious health issues myself, nor any of my siblings. And so when I got married, we had our first um, child, a daughter, and she was, I put in quotes, you know, perfectly healthy. So we decided to have another child and our second child pregnancy was going great, ended up doing the triple screen and some markers came back a little off. And so we went and went to a specialist and had things checked out. And in the process of that, Unrelated to the triple screen, the physician had a look at the heart and found some irregularities in the heart. It was very early in the pregnancy still, and so he couldn't be sure, so sent us directly, literally up the stairs, up the elevator to a pediatric cardiologist. All of this, all of this was new to us, the idea of even a pediatric cardiologist. So went to this first appointment and, and was told that the heart wasn't forming right. It looked like it, um, the unborn child uh, did, was missing one of their main pumping chambers. Again, didn't even really compute to what that meant. Several appointments later, we were told that 
this would require a three-stage open heart surgery. It was very risky. The chances of, of him surviving were pretty iffy. That would be a very, very rocky road. I remember asking the pediatric thoracic surgeon on a scale of one to 10, what's his heart? And he said about a nine. And I, I in hindsight, I think, well, I don't think he could say a 10 <laughs> because, so we were about uh, at the worst position we could possibly be in is as parents and also given the option of whether we wanted to terminate. We really did a lot of research and quality of life issues and decided to go ahead and have our son, William. Very thankful that we did. He, I'll start the story with that right now he is a junior in college and 20 years old. And I start there because everything else in between has been very, very full of highs and lows. And I can't emphasize enough, though, what a blessing he is in my life, in our life. And he's one of those people who everyone who meets him is immediately attracted to him. He's full of kindness and empathy and enormous amount of, of giving of himself in any way he can. So it's been a, it's been a very rocky road. He has a lot of abdominal issues as well. He's right now, he's had 12 surgeries in total, and that doesn't even mention procedures. So it's been tough, but, uh, and, and it changed everything. We suddenly were thrown into this world of children's hospitals and specialists in the pediatric world. We have a team of specialists that I didn't even know existed prior to this. So that's kind of where the last 20 years have been in a nutshell. <laughs> Wow. Wow. That is, I mean, I, I, as you were talking, I'm envisioning, you know, a, a young pregnant mom and, you know, I think especially those of us that are worriers, you know, you always have those, gosh, is there anything wrong? But, you know, you don't dwell on that. And then it's like in an instant, your life is flip-flopped as far as, you know, what does this diagnosis mean? And then, like you mentioned, when you have a child with special health care, needs, I mean, for some of my families, and and you may have fallen into this, I cannot imagine what their days are like when, you know, they have pumps and, you know, all kinds of medication regimens and some are on ventilator, you know, just the intensity. It's, it's like a whole nother job. Was that in any way your experience? That was completely our experience. And I also want to preface with the fact that I'm in a a healthy marriage with a partner that's a 50-50, that I have education and resources and a support system around us. And so that already puts us in a whole different category than so, so very many people who are also dealing with children with chronic conditions. And so I know how fortunate I am. And one thing, Leah, you said that I'd like to bounce back to, as you said, this young pregnant woman and I can't tell you how many times, and I did this myself, you would say, or I would say to a, a pregnant woman, oh, do you know if you're having a boy or a girl? And they would say no. And you would say, well, it doesn't really matter as long as it's healthy. And that is something in our culture that's said all the time. And it's so interesting now how I would never, ever say that anymore, because by all accounts, our son wasn't born healthy. And yet, he is the most magical person, just like any other child. 
I would never have thought about that. I mean, I usually say, because I didn't know the sex of my child when she was born, but I would always just say, oh, surprises are fun. Although the surprise that you had was not a fun one. Right, right, right. But you'll be interested, you know, now that you, when you think about this kind of thing, you'll say, oh yeah, right. You know, that, that is a common thing that is, is, is said, but yeah, you know, William missed all of his seventh grade. He was homeschooled due to health. He's been on, he's been on TPN. He's been, he had three years of a feeding tube. So there's so many things that you learn and you adapt. We ended up having a third child, uh, another daughter, and we are so grateful for the kind of kids that they all are and, and just feel overall like what a crazy journey, but it's kind of made us all who we are. That's for sure. Right. It, it's kind of not the life most of us would imagine and, you know, but we have the lives we have and they all of the experiences shape who we are and, you know, finding those ways to support our children and, you know, help them. But I, again, you know, I, I'm on the other side where I see the families and work with the families, but to be the family is a whole nother experience. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about because you had so much interaction with healthcare. I mean, from the get-go, you know, what are the things that folks said or didn't say that helped or supported you or, you know, upset you or, or were hard to hear? You know, I've been thinking a lot about these kind of things and there's just, let me start with, there are so many good things and so many physicians, nurses, OTPT specialists that have been absolutely phenomenal and frankly life-saving to all of us. Of course, you don't go through 20 years of this without some negative as well. And so I only say tell the negative as a as a tool of learning because I really believe that everyone that goes into the healthcare profession wants to help. I really believe that they're doing the best they can, they're trying, they're human as well. So when I give examples of things that were difficult or hard or what we would consider to not be appropriate, I do it with with love and kindness as a learning tool because I think their hearts are in the right places. I think you're very you're very gracious and and I would agree, uh, you know, I think those of us that go into medicine, you know, I mean there are usually altruistic reasons. It's not usually a financial decision because it's a long journey and that that's not the driving force, but I think, you know, we want to save lives. We want to touch people's lives, but, you know, as you said, sometimes we focus so much on the medical stuff that we forget about the emotional piece, the person. That's right. And that leads me to some of the, some of the surface, I'd say the surface level things that have affected us, especially when you're a constant, you're a repeat customer in the healthcare field industry is things like, you know, feeling rushed, which I know is a managed care issue, an insurance issue. But when we know when you are rushing to get out of our room, we know when you are losing maybe eye contact, when you're not really listening anymore. We, we know that we can sense that. Things like that, things like not taking the time to read 
his chart or his medical history in a hospital setting before you come in the room to really understand the complexity of the of the kid that's in front of you. Things like not admitting when you really don't know. When when someone is as, when a child is as complex as our son is or or maybe even not complex, it is okay to say this is tough, this is hard. I hear you. I'm not sure yet, but I'm going to figure this out or let me talk to some other colleagues or let's do X, Y, or Z, but there's kind of a a BS meter that parents who have been down this road long enough, we kind of have a heightened sense of, and so I'm going to respect you a lot more if you just admit that, boy, this is tough. This is a hard one. I'm not sure, but, but I'm not going to give up on you either. That's important to us. Also, if you have news to tell us, I understand how busy you are, but sometimes you need to deliver the news yourself rather than send in the resident or the the nurse to do it. Like sometimes there's certain information we really need to hear from you because because we've been at this rodeo for so long, we're actually pretty intelligent on a lot of things. And so we're going to have questions. And often when you deliver a message through someone else, they only they're only the messenger, so they can't answer our follow-up questions. And then they get diluted. And it's everybody knows what it's like to play the telephone game. And you lose the essence. You lose critical components of the questions that we are trying to get to the root of. Because often it's a question followed by a follow-up question with a follow-up question. And my right. training is as a lawyer. And so that's how I process. I, I question, then I follow up, then I follow up, then I follow up. And that's not fair to put a resident or a physician on call in that position when they haven't been the one tracking the case. Wow. It's when you say that, I think about my, I'm taking care of my elderly parents and I took my dad to the emergency room and he's 90 and, you know, the resident came in first and she's a pediatric resident. It's her first rotation in ER. And so I know as a pediatrician, she doesn't know a whole lot about elder care. It's not her fault. It's just, you know, and she has to do this rotation and it's important. So her job is getting the information, relaying it. And then the attending came in and spent like two minutes, didn't really like look at us or do much of an exam. And that was it. I didn't see him ever again. And so when we got all the, you know, the results back on the ultrasound and this and that, the resident delivered that information. And then when I had questions, you know, the nurse answered it. And it was so disappointing. It was so hard because I didn't feel like I got my questions answered. And and it, and again, it wasn't the resident's fault, but she was put in that position. And, you know, I think as teachers, the attendings, we have to remember our job is to teach and supervise. It's not just to have somebody do your grunt work. Exactly. And, and that leads to, there's certain things that you can, you know, you can see that look on that resident's face when you started asking those questions, because I'm sure she was just like panicked almost like, oh my gosh, I am not prepared to answer this. Right. And and there's um, the nurse stepping in, which is great, but you, you see that disconnect that I'm talking about there. Yeah, Yeah. Those are systemic issues. You know, those are age-old systemic issues in how we train physicians as well. And the lack now of time that those attendings are 
spending with those residents. And I hear that from residents. I wrote a, a poem about rounding and I, it was, it was called rounding with the pack because sometimes it feels like a pack of wolves are coming into your room and moving from room to room. And I was talking with someone about that and they said, yeah, that's our, we, we relish that time because that's some of the, that's like the few minutes that we will have or the few of uh, the short hours we actually have with those attendings and they're so valuable and they go so quick. Yeah. And you know, again, I think back on my own experiences. I mean, some of it you learn because you're, you know, thrown in there and that's just what you do. I mean, by necessity, but if you don't have that, not necessarily oversight, but that input, that guidance, that mentoring is so critical. And the things that I learned the most, I think about the mentors that helped me. And it wasn't I was just alone and scared because, you know, the reality is, you know, these are big decisions and you don't want to do the wrong thing. Right, right. And on the, on the flip side, I have to say we over the years have developed a team of advocates that we know are our go-to people on the inside of the healthcare profession. We have our, our cardiologist who unfortunately just recently retired, but a cardiology nurse named Jenny. We have our 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 general surgeon, they are our people in the field. They have been with us a long time and they are our advocates and we know we can go to them for anything and they, they will be there for us. And their power and voice for us have helped so many times to get other physicians and other professionals to, to really to listen to us, to hear us. Because again, we know what's going on. And William now as a 20 year old know what's going on better than anyone. And so if you don't feel like you're being heard, if you don't feel like you're being listened to, that the trust that erodes is almost immediate. And at this point, William particularly, he will size up the care he's receiving fairly quickly and decide whether he's going to trust them, frankly, pretty quickly now. Wow. And you said something that really struck me, and that's that oftentimes the parents know better than you about certain aspects of the care because, you know, I mean, I haven't had to do G-tube feedings with a child. I know what I learned about the two, but to actually do the mechanics day in, day out of that stuff, you know it better than I do, but that's uncomfortable as the quote expert to not be the expert and to recognize that, you know, there are sometimes when, or many times the parents, well, you certainly know the story better than anyone else. And, and of course we ask you to retell it a million times, which is frustrating for having been on that end of it as well. I didn't realize like, Oh God, I have to tell the same story. You know, somebody comes in and says, so tell me, and you're like, really? Yeah. And that sometimes leads to a particular, I think of a lot of this in a hospital setting, not, not when I'm, we're going into the pediatrician or into the specialist, but particularly in the hospital setting, you will have three or four times a day, sometimes people coming in. And when you're dealing with a complex child, who's, I always think of, you cannot think of in a specialty category, you have to, it's a system, it's a system. The body is a system. And so when I'm having to retell the story or William is, I think, aren't any of you talking to each other? Aren't any of you asking how could his, 
perfusion be affecting his kidneys? How could his heart be affecting his XYZ PDQ? How could his abdominal issues be associated with his cardiology issues? And it's extremely frustrating to feel like all of the specialists are operating in their own tubes and not meeting together collectively to talk systemic in a systemic way about the body. And I think if we had if we had the time to do that, that makes the most sense. I like to think of my job as a pediatrician to be sort of the conductor. I may not have all the the brilliance of the cardiologist, the nephrologist, you know, the GI, all of the specialists, but I can at least be the one to connect them. And I've done that a couple of times with really complicated patients just to say, hey, can we have a conference about this? And I think now, again, sort of as a COVID silver lining, if there is such a thing, is this virtual meetings should facilitate that. So that there is a way. So when I come in the room, I can say, let me tell you what I, I understand about your case. Can you fill me in? Am I missing anything? It seems like that would save a lot of time. Yeah, I agree with you also 100% about your role, Leah. It is you, I can't overstate the importance of, of the pediatrician as the ringleader and as the conductor, because your ability to pull it together and like you said, based on time and schedules and busyness is, is huge. And you're our point person really throughout this whole journey. You're, you're generally our consistent provider on, on the day to day and your, your role cannot, cannot be overstated the importance of it. Well, and I think the other thing that is for me, when I think back on my patients, you know, we get to know the families really well. And I'm in a big practice and, you know, we don't necessarily have our own patient panel, but typically if we have a child with chronic illness, you know, we sort of, they, they sort of become assigned to one person, maybe not officially, but it just happens. And it's so nice when you can walk in and you, you have the history already because you've been with them so long. So, you know, I can see for a resident stepping in or my partner on call, you know, it's like, oh gosh, <laughs> you know, and I've had my partners call and say, hey, is there anything I should know about this? You know, this patient's coming in for X, Y, and Z. And, and I think that's helpful to talk to each other. I think that's huge. That tells that tells me a lot about that position right there. Who would call take the time to call you and say, hey, I've got this coming in. Because I often think now, the older I've gotten and the more we know, I think, oh my gosh, I can only imagine these poor residents or the attending <laughs> looking at William's chart and thinking, oh my gosh, what am I getting myself? You know, there's got to be, that's kind of scary to go into that room, to our room. I can Plus, tell you, I can tell you that that is the case. And of course, in the old days, prior to electronic records, you know, some patients would have three charts. And, you know, they'd come in at, you know, two in the morning and you have to call down to medical records and they'd send up these charts. Now with the electronic records, you just have to dig and go back, you know, trying to find these things. So, yeah, you're, you're right. Sometimes it is a daunting. And I don't, I don't think you necessarily, when you're new to this whole world of say a children's hospital or any hospital new to that environment, you don't understand it. It's interesting. You know, I, going through law school and then suddenly you're thrown into your first job, 
you realize, oh my gosh, I, I know some, but I know very little. And I, I think that we forget that a, a new, a quote, a new doctor would be the same way. You know, you're, you don't come fully formed out of med school. You know, that, that again is you're offering lots of grace and, and it's true. I mean, we, one of our mantras is see one, do one, teach one. And that's how we learn. It's an apprenticeship really. And Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not because you may not always have the one with the most expertise. You hope at some point there is that person, but you have a lot of people that are learning. And one of the things that comes to mind that I think clinicians can do is to ask patient permission. You know, I'm working with a resident who's helping me coordinate and, you know, is it okay with you if they are part of our learning team? I don't think that that probably happens very often. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I think that when you do that, you're very rarely will get a no. But I think that that leads me to to another piece of advice, if I could offer it for physicians, which is please never forget to introduce yourself and who you are and what specialty you are, particularly in the hospital setting, because we see so many people come and go and everyone's wearing scrubs. And so we don't know if you're from pathology. We don't know if you're here to, if you're a care partner, or we don't know if you're a resident, a physician, what you are. And so never, never underestimate the power of a simple introduction and who you are and why you've come in the room. That, that seems like that should be pretty basic. The other thing that comes to mind with that is sit down and don't have your hand on the doorknob. I mean, if you sit down, even if I only spend a few minutes, it indicates that I, and look at you, that I have time to hear your story. And even if I don't, it puts me in the physical position to take a breath and hear. So true. I can't tell you how many people stay in the doorway obviously one foot in one foot out and sometimes you don't even I think recognize that somewhere mentally you recognize it even if you're not able to articulate that in the moment you said something to me when we had talked prior to this recording that really stuck with me and I think it kind of fits this kind of discussion we're having and that was my son wants to know he matters and that his life, even if it is short, is not in vain. There, there is a value in him being a survivor. And I think it's important that we convey that not only to the parents, but we have to remember we have this child in front of us and kids hear, see, know a lot. And ultimately, it's about them. That's right. And it's so interesting to even have to, to say that because the value that he has already given the world and so many people is immeasurable. And here's this kid that has gone through so much and all he wants to do is, is help people. He, all he wanted to be was a firefighter. Well, of course his heart prohibits him from doing that. So now he is majoring in emergency management where he wants to work with FEMA or the American Red Cross. And as he says it, he wants to help people on their worst day. You know, you don't get that kind of human being every day that's been through the trauma that he has, that all he wants to do is give back and help people. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty compelling story that you don't have to have every piece of your anatomy to be an amazing contributor to society. I I love that. I, and you must be so, so proud. I'm thinking about the times that were hard, scary, those emergencies, those critical moments, 
for him and for you that, you know, having to face that and maybe even facing, you know, mortality, is my child going to die or from the patient side, am I going to die? And I think, you know, medical professionals were so focused on fixing everything that maybe we don't always address those fears because it's a scary topic to bring up. You don't want to, you know, put something in somebody's head. Well, it's already there, right? So is there some language? I mean, are there some experiences that you can give us some advice about that? You know, I have to say, I think you've hit on something that's very, very tough. And you're right. It's His mortality has been in front of us every every day. And yet we're constantly reminded of everybody's mortality, which none of us like to talk about. But it's so interesting. I can't tell you how many times my husband and I have had the conversation of being so worried about will he, will he go to kindergarten? Will he go to high school? Will he go to college? Will this, this, this? And, and in between all of these worries, perfectly healthy children have passed away from X, Y, or Z. And so we have, we have truly, it's, this isn't just a cliche for us. We truly have learned to appreciate every single day with every member of our family and loved ones. And to talk about it, I think is very important. I don't know how to do that right. I don't. I still don't because I think every family is in a different place. This is where I guess would be my plug for, I can't overemphasize the help that therapists and mental health professionals can give to a family, whether it's siblings, parents, or the child with the chronic issues, chronic health issues, because we all need to process it. And we're, our, our stories are all individual, whether you're the older sibling, the younger sibling, the father, the mother, the patient. So I think therapy can really help. Interestingly, William is transitioning from the pediatric world into the adult world. And it's the first time I've heard him address head on with his new cardiologist. Tell me what I'm looking at. Tell me what's in front of me. And that was a real sign of his maturity for me. And also that he's ready. Right. Sometimes we have to look for those cues. Timing. Uh, Timing mm -hmm. is everything. I, I guess one of the phrases that comes to mind is I don't know about you, but many kids that have gone through what you're going through sometimes worry about dying. Has that ever been something you've worried about? And and that way of asking may be easier. Right, right, right. And then you know where the child's at. You know, it's it's like you said, you don't, <laughs> we're afraid of putting something in their head. And yet, really, is it really not there? It, it's probably there, you know? <laughs> Well, and, and in previous podcasts, I've had discussions with parents who've had to deal with their child's um, suicidality. And I think that's, you know, again, that idea that somehow if I ask it, it will make it so. Right. And yet, you know, right. I mean, it's important that we ask people, are you, are you scared? Are you worried? And if they say no, okay. But, you, you know, for a lot of people, it is there. It is sitting in their in their thoughts and, but they're afraid to say it. Sometimes kids don't want to scare their parents or worry right. their parents. And so they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to upset the parent. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very true. Yeah. Well, this kind of brings me to what you're working on and this concept of narrative medicine. Can you describe what that is? I would, I'd love to about seven, eight, about eight years ago, William became a Make-A-Wish kid, and that was, shouldn't have been shocking to me, but it was shocking to me. It was a very low point. 
He had had multiple surgeries. He'd lost two thirds of his colon, his gallbladder. And he was on TPN at the time, which was, means he wasn't eating or drinking. He was being fed through a bag that we carried around. And it was horrible. And I went to the Iowa summer writing workshop for a week. And I'm not even sure what prompted me to do it, but I did it. And in that class, I wrote a poem. And it was the first time I'd written a poem since elementary school. And I didn't particularly like the poem, but I wrote it. And it was kind of this oh, class assignment and always being the overachiever as a student. You know, I did my homework and did the assignment. And that started everything for me, Leah. That really started me down this road of writing poetry. And I was always shocked at what actually came out on the page. And I'd write something, look at it later, not remember writing it and think, where did that come from? Well, of course, I know where it came from now. And really, that is a form of narrative medicine. And narrative medicine on the other side, on the physician side, and the term narrative medicine came from Dr. Rita Sharon out of Columbia University over 20 years ago now, where she had been teaching physicians and clinicians and to listen to patients' stories through readings of uh, literature or poetry and helping them to hear the stories of patients and in the process of doing this now, quantitative studies have been released and are coming out showing how by doing this and by getting this training, physician burnout is decreasing, patient trust is increasing, and now we're seeing it also on the patient and caregiver side, working in the same kind of ways, working to increase trust, working to for being able to relate symptoms, relate things better for better clinical outcomes. So it's this fascinating process and poetry has been my mode of telling my story. And it, from that Iowa Summers Writer workshop, I actually ended up revising the poem, submitting it to a health journal called um, The Healing Muse, which is out of the medical school, SUNY Medical School, Upstate Medical University, where it was published. And then it was read on New York Public Radio. And it's from an incident where William had to get so many blood draws, so many blood draws. And nobody, he would always say, would you count to three and then poke? It was his one little ask, his one little ability as a young kid to have a teensy bit of control over his body. And so many people wouldn't listen whether they thought they were being clever or, oh, we'll surprise him so it doesn't hurt. Again, I don't think anyone did it in any way maliciously at all, but they didn't listen. And it was this little, little ask from a little boy saying, will you, will you grant me the respect of when I say count to three, then poke that you'll do it that way for me. Aww, and that's so, so, I mean, that's so sweet. I mean, obviously in pediatrics, we you know, I mean, we give lots of shots and that's often terrifying for kids. And I know our nurses work really hard to try and make it easy, you know, easier, but boy, that's a note to self. Like, listen, if somebody says this would make it easier for me, I think what you're talking about, it sounds to me like with narrative medicine, it's looking, searching and hearing each other's humanity. And I think about the trauma world you know, often the question isn't why is this, but what happened to you and tell me your story. 
And there's a new, some new work that's coming out. I just heard a podcast on Brene Brown about trauma stories and Oprah and Bruce Perry, who's a physician, are doing this book called What Happened to Me or What Happened to You? And, you know, again, the power of story. Yes. Um, yeah. So, well, that brings me to, would you share a poem? I, I would love to. I'm going to go ahead. Um, I had a couple different poems in front of me. And I think, I think I'm going to revert back to that first one that I wrote that was read on New York Public Radio. And I wrote this poem. I, for years and years, I thought I wrote it as if I was William at that young age. It's interesting. In hindsight, I think I might have been writing it about myself. And it's called My Tattoos. Every time I get a new mark, I stare at my body. I try to cover it. I don't delight in my new facade. My markings are not colorful and romantic. They are not detailed and poetic. Yet people still stare. I received my first marking when I was very young. I have many markings now. Some are big and some are small. Some have been done on top of the one before. Each one is characterized by fear, anxiety, and pain. I hate the needle, but I keep getting marked. I shake when it comes near me. I always direct the person holding it to count to three before they start. They promise they will. Sometimes they break their promise. My skin hasn't been marked with pigment, but with scars. The artists who mark my body use scalpels. They are skilled. They are experts. They have perfected their art. Sometimes they remember me and sometimes they don't. I always remember them. When I grow up, I may become the one that marks others. When someone wants me to count to three, I will. I will be gentle and kind. I will always understand their fear, anxiety, and pain. I will always remember them. A tattoo has been referred to as a deviant sign of something that is absent or invisible. Absent is my spleen, gallbladder, two-thirds of my colon, and half of my heart. Invisible are my feelings masked by my young smile. My tattoos lie outside social norms, but I didn't initiate them. Are my tattoos an act of deviance by God? I don't want any more tattoos, but I am not done being marked. And interestingly, Leah, that poem, my brother-in-law is a musician on the island of Bermuda. And he took that poem and talk about narrative medicine and the ripple effect. He took this poem and wrote a song called Count to Three and I'll Be There that he plays now when he's entertaining in Bermuda. Wow. So that's just so sweet and so powerful. I mean, and it's such a visual poem. I mean, I'm I'm seeing and of course knowing about open heart surgeries, I'm I'm imagining the process and uh, the pain and the fear and I mean just all the all the things. Where can people find you if they want to read your poetry and follow you? Well, I've just in the last month started a poetry site called the Tiny Poetry Project. It's on Instagram and Facebook. It's called Tiny Poetry Project. I also have a website called tinypoetryproject.com, narrative medicine for the soul. And a couple of times a week on Tuesdays and Fridays, I'm posting micro poems, mini poems about health and healing. And it's been phenomenal. It's just been this amazing place where 
people are starting to gather and comment. And it's been also wonderful for me to be able to get out poetry, but in a short form where people that are on social media can read a poem in, in less than 30 seconds, um, but maybe have something to think about for the day. Well, I hope listeners will take a look. And there's a lot of great stuff on there. Some poetry that just really hits home and I'll make sure to include all the links in the show notes so people can find you. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for sharing so personally. It takes a lot of courage to do that. And clearly your son is a courageous young man. And and then the empathy that you described that he has, you know, that's grown out of all of these, some of them very awful experiences. And, and I know how traumatic that must be for you as a mom watching your son go through this and and probably helplessness at times. But wow, I mean, so amazing that you've taken this pain and, and created this beauty out of it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for those kind words, but also thank you for providing this forum, this podcast for these stories to get out there. We really appreciate you're already a busy pediatrician and for you to be taking the time to do this extra step to get these stories out there, stories like ours, uh, we can't thank you enough because it can only help make our healthcare system better and stronger. Well, thank you again. And and again, I, I appreciate you. And I, I'm glad that the podcast feels like it resonates. So, well, listen, I hope our paths continue to cross and that we follow each other. So again, thank you so much. Agreed. Thank you, Leah. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Wendy Hind for sharing her story and her son's story. It takes a lot of courage to do this. And I think that there's a lot of really helpful information for us to digest. So here are my takeaways. Number one, Wendy reminded us of our common humanity and basic kindness. This is the reason we went into medicine to save lives, but we have to keep in mind that it's more than just saving the body. It's the emotion. It's the soul. Number two, it's okay to not know. Don't be us. The families know it. The kids know it. And it doesn't help. Number three, listen. Really listen. If you're rushed and preoccupied and just moving through the visit at the bedside or in the office, that disconnect, as Wendy describes, erodes trust. And it is the trust that carries the relationship. Number four, and this is a really simple one, introduce yourself and then sit down. If you have your hand on the doorknob and you're standing by the door, the family is not going to feel like you have the time for them. Just take time to sit down. Number five, read the chart before you see the patient. Families get asked over and over and over again to tell the story. We ask, so what's going on? It really helps if you know the history first. You can always tell what you know and then ask the family and the patient to fill in the details and to make sure that you got it right. Number six, parents and patients know more about their own situation than you do. They are their own best expert. Number seven, parents and patients worry about outcomes and mortality, even if we're not talking about it. It's okay to inquire about what they may be thinking about. And you can consider phrasing it like, I don't know about you, but many kids or families who have children with this condition often worry that there's going to be a really bad outcome or even death. 
Is that anything you have thought about? Wendy recommends using mental health specialists to help guide and support parents and patients. And honestly, it helps us too. Number eight, deliver important news yourself. Don't delegate this information sharing to the resident. It's important that you know firsthand what's going on and can translate that to the family. Number nine, talk to the other specialists involved. Again, these seem like simple things that we should already know, and and many of you already do this, but a reminder is important. We make great ringleaders and conductors. And now with Zoom, it's possible to gather everyone together, and you can include the family in this as well, to go over what's going on. So each person knows the other specialist recommendations and why they're thinking about that. And it really is a great discussion. Number 10, narrative medicine allows patients and parents to tell their stories. This can decrease provider burnout when we can connect at this level. And it improves patient trust for us to listen to the story. And on the flip side, this is a way that physicians and other healthcare providers can help process some of the really difficult stuff that we do. Dr. Abraham Verghese is a physician that does this beautifully in many of his books. He wrote a work of fiction called Cutting for Stone, which I love, and In My Own Country, which are just incredible stories of how he connects with families and patients and deals with his own heartache. Number 11, Wendy shared a powerful poem, My Tattoos, and it describes how the work that we do to save lives, like surgery, also leaves indelible marks. And we have to remember that this is happening to the patient and that it's frightening and carries with it all of its own traumas. Number 12, you can find more about Wendy's work at Tiny Poetry Project on Instagram. And I'll include links to her website in the show notes so you can find more about what she's doing. Thank you so much for joining me again. I really appreciate you coming back to listen week to week, and I hope to bring many more interesting topics. So take care, do what you do best, taking care of kids, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.